Much of the material today that you're going to hear is from a book called Conversational Evangelism by Norman and David Geisler. So if you ever want more information on what we're talking about tonight, it's Conversational Evangelism by Norman and David Geisler. You know, evangelism is the means of our faith. It's the way that it is expressed out to other people. It's by your boldness and by defending your faith that you show that you have faith in the first place. You know, faith without works is dead, it says in James, as we've learned. Um, but even for those of you that went to England with us, uh, some of this might be a review for you, but it's good review because a lot of us can so easily forget that kind of stuff. Um, so let me ask you a question. Is anyone here afraid of heights? Don't be, don't be shy. Don't be shy. I'm afraid of heights. Emily's like, yes, I'm afraid of heights. I know you are. If you're afraid of heights like me, you might find uh, when your friends go to Six Flags, you're the person that likes to stay behind. If you're anyone like me, at least. And you make up excuses saying that, oh, well, you know, it's not the perfect weather for the ride to be going the ride looks rusty or just you have to use the bathroom or I don't know. You come up with all these different kinds of ideas. And when I was in high school, when I was your age, I was coaxed into going on a roller coaster that probably none of you know of called the Viper. Really? <laughs> you know you're getting old when Cody's like, I've heard of it. I've heard of Viper. I've heard legends and stories. Well, my friends were like, well, dude, you're, you're chicken. You got to get on a roller coaster. Oh, fine. I'll, I'll, show they, I'll show you that I'm not scared. I'll get on a roller coaster. I got on a Viper, worst roller coaster ever, especially for your first one, because it goes upside down in circles. But this was like the first time they tested out like the, the straps that come down over you. So there is like a margin of error of like a foot between my shoulder and the strap. So the entire time, I'm just holding myself in, like lodging myself so I don't fall out. And my shoulders were bruised for like two months. It was bad. And they're like, oh, was that fun? I was like, yeah, it was so much fun. I'm never coming back. And I have not been, I kid you not, I have not been to Six Flags since that experience. It was that bad. <clears throat> so if you're like me, when you're going on a, a roller coaster, you don't even think about enjoying it. You tell yourself, if I just make it out alive, it'll be a success. It's true. And in many ways, many people view evangelism in the same way. You feel pressured to do it. You don't think it'll be any fun. And you feel like you make no progress. You know, you go, you start at a point, and then you wind up ending right where you started. But what if evangelism could be different? What if you could actually have a good time while evangelizing, Re recognizing that you're building God's kingdom and watching God speak through you. And that's the exciting thing for me is when I evangelize, I notice that it's not my words coming out, but it's, it's God putting his words through me and I'm just kind of the vessel I'm watching God work through me. It's an exciting thing. And I think it's readily available to anyone who's willing to do it. It doesn't matter if you think you have the gift or not, but God is calling each and every one of us to represent him. As I was uh, in a band back in the day, I remember playing shows, and after I would play a show, whether it was in Pennsylvania or New York or whatever, I would go out evangelizing 
after I was done playing my set. And I just start talking to them about Jesus. And there was this like a couple moments in which I'm having this conversation with people and it just felt like the universe lined up and everything I was doing was what I was made to do. Like I was made to represent Jesus to other people. It's an exciting feeling that doesn't come about by any other means. And I've had all different kinds of uh, highs, if you will, whether it's you know, playing music and you have this nervous high and you feel like you're in the moment, you, you sing and you feel good because people appreciate you, or you're climbing and after you're done with that physical activity, you complete a goal, there's that kind of high. But there's nothing like feeling like the entire universe is aligned when Jesus is working through you. It's an exciting thing, it really is. So as we gear up for the, a leap in the dark, just imagine seeing a modern day Harvest Crusade. If any of you were at church on Sunday, Pastor Lloyd talked about how Greg Glory's church, you know, Harvest America that's coming up, he started his church out of youth outreaches. Just kind of getting together and eventually there's thousands of people and they're like, we got to rent out Anaheim Stadium. And they've been doing that ever since. Can you imagine something like that happening in our church? I'm not saying it will happen, but I don't doubt it either. You know, how exciting would it be to just have a meeting like this and then one day you turn around and thousands of people all get this excitement because they all want to meet the same God that you have. They want that relationship that you have with Jesus. So in other words, I think we just want faith to go viral. A lot of things go viral these days. On YouTube, you'll have like cat videos and like whatever. But what if we can make Jesus go viral? Not like he's a virus, but you know what I'm saying. But before you even talk about some evangelism tactics, we have to talk about the challenges of our culture. Because we can't reach, we can't hope to reach the culture unless we know what we're dealing with, what the problems our culture is dealing with in our world today. If you notice that Jesus himself didn't use the same tactics for everyone. When he came to the rich young ruler, what did he say? Does anyone remember? Raise your hand. What did Jesus say to the rich young ruler? Come on. Someone's got to know. Are you just shy? Opportunity for boldness right now, right here, right now. Rich young ruler, yes. And then what happened? Yes. As Joe pointed out, he said to the rich young ruler, go and sell all that you have. Now that was one tactic. Notice how Jesus did not say that to everyone. Can you imagine him saying that to the woman at the well? Hey, go sell all that you have. Or the person who's blind or the beggar at the door. You walk up to a homeless person in New York City. You know, Jesus says to go and sell all that you have. Like, I don't have anything. Actually, I live on the street. Awkward. Jesus sought to address the obstacles that prevented people from coming to him, uh, coming to him in faith. And so because of that, it's different. You can't just take one method and say, I'm going to apply this method every single time with every person that I meet. And what you see in the Bible, actually, is that Jesus has a very different method of evangelizing than Paul did. Jesus, when he talked to the Jewish people, he spoke in parables. Really confusing stuff that made them be like, what? What are you talking about? And Paul, when he talks, he just preaches the gospel and people get saved. And so some people might think, why can't we just use the same method? We'll take Paul's method and we'll, we'll preach it to the Jews. But notice, Paul spoke to the Greeks, the people who had never heard the gospel, so they weren't hardened to the gospel. So he could just basically give the gospel, you know, Jesus died for your sins and people are just repenting left and right. But when Jesus spoke, he says, you have ears and you do not hear. You have eyes, but you do not see. 
These are people that memorize the Bible. You know, in a lot of ways, I think it's like people that grew up in the church. You've heard this stuff so many times, you need a parable. You need a story to bring out the truths of the gospel because we're so hard-headed oftentimes. And I'm the same way because I grew up in the church. So it's not man-made techniques, but just doing our best to be yielded to the Spirit. And some people might say, well, why are we even having, why are we even learning about evangelism? Why shouldn't we just go out and do it, be Spirit-led? But if you think about it, no Christian basketball team says, we're going to be Spirit-led and we're not going to have a plan. We're not going to have any game plan. We're just going to go out there and just see what happens. No, you make mistakes and you practice and you try to get better. It's the same way when, when you're taking evangelism. You want to do your, your best diligence to please the Lord in the way that you think and the way that you express the gospel. So it's going to be different depending on who you're, who you're talking to. So you're just basically, if you think about it in this analogy, you're honing your instrument for the musician who is, who is God to play through you. So you as an instrument, you're tuning yourself up so that you can be best used by the Holy Spirit. So what are these challenges? Well, number one, I think, is the rejection of moral absolutes. The first challenge that we see today in our culture is the rejection of moral absolutes. What in the world does that mean? Well, a moral absolute is a belief that good and evil are things that really exist that are independent of man. So they're above and beyond man's thinking. Let me give you an example. If something is objective, and those of you that were with me at Ignite, I taught this, the moral argument, one of the last messages I taught, objective reality and objective truth is something like gravity. It exists whether you believe in it or not. You don't have to believe in it, but you're going to jump up and you're going to fall down. Subjective things are mind-dependent things. Like you like chocolate ice cream, I like vanilla ice cream. It's mind-independent. There doesn't make anything really better uh, for it to be chocolate ice cream than vanilla ice cream. It's just the way that you think. And some people have their opinion and other people have their own opinion. And you might like to think that One Direction is objectively the best band, but it's a subjective thing. Some people think other bands are better than them, and I personally think they aren't. Sorry. So to say that morality is subjective, and this is what our culture does, is to say that Right and wrong aren't really anything that exists, but they're just mind-dependent things. You know, you have a feeling that this is wrong. You believe that this homosexuality is, is wrong, but that's your opinion. And it's not, there's nothing really to say about right and wrong. And cultural anthropologist Gene Veith has this quote. He says, it is hard to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to people who believe that since morality is relative, they have no sins to forgive. It is not the lunatic fringe rejecting the very concept of absolute truth, but two-thirds of the American people. Let me break that down for you. Or as Matt Chandler says, let me unpack that for you. That was a side note. That was a, yeah, anyway. Um, how can you go up to people and say, Jesus died for your sins? if they don't think that they did anything wrong. First, you've got to bring it up to the surface and say, you realize you've sinned against the living God. You have to address that barrier that they have to knowing Christ. Because if they don't think they did anything wrong, it doesn't matter what you say because they don't think that they need forgiveness. So first challenge, rejection of moral absolutes. Second challenge, skepticism towards truth. Skepticism towards truth. Many people feel like truth is unknowable. 
that we're all in the dark. As I said, you know, the theme of John is a leap in the dark. We're all, you know, there's no real truth out there. And, you know, you believe what you want to believe. But in the end, it doesn't really matter as long as you try to be a good person. You ever hear that before? It doesn't matter what, what religion you believe in as long as you do the right thing and you're basically a good person. And if you think about it, we have a lot of barriers that the early church never encountered. The early church around the time of Jesus didn't have any problem believing that Jesus was a real person because they saw him. They didn't have any problem believing that the Bible was uh, the same over the, over the years because they had the Bible in their hands and they were watching the Bible being written, you know, for the New Testament. These days, some people even doubt the Holocaust. And some people, especially in Asia, doubt so many different things. Like, Can you really believe that it happened? Nick Pollard says, the main problem in evangelism today is the ever-increasing number of people who are simply not interested in hearing about Jesus because they are quite happy with their own views. So you think that Jesus is God, well, that's great for you, but for me, it doesn't really work. You know, I believe my own thing, you believe what you want to believe. So skepticism towards truth is the second challenge. Third challenge is an increasing intolerance towards those who believe in absolute truth an increasing intolerance towards those who believe in absolute truth. So to our culture, we, we seem arrogant for even professing that we have found the truth. Where people say, well, who do you think you are to say that Jesus is, is the only way? Isn't that kind of arrogant? There's no such thing as truth. And if you've done any time in apologetics, any studies, you know the roadrunner tactic, and we're going to kind of teach that to you tonight if you don't know it. When someone says to you, there is no such thing as truth, you just ask, is what you just said true? Because if they say that, it's self-defeating. There is no such thing as truth except, the, except what I just said, which means there's some truth, and then you have to ask which truth is, or how do you distinguish between some truths? One conversation I had with one person went like this. No one can know if God exists. They said that to me. I don't think anyone can know if God really exists. And I I asked, how do you know that to be true? How do you know it to be true that no one knows that God exists? And they said, well, maybe if someone came back from the dead, I guess if they went to the other side and saw God, they would know if God exists or not. And they came back, but no one's ever done that. And I said, number one, someone did. His name was Jesus. Number two, what gives you the right to decide what warrants truth and what doesn't warrant truth, what warrants a belief and what doesn't warrant a belief. Why do you get to set the conditions on what makes a person's belief justified? Like who made you king? And then you're like, yeah, unless they fulfill this set of conditions, it's not really justified belief. Interesting. This is what pre-evangelism is. It's seeing these obstacles to faith that keep people from receiving the gospel and addressing them. So, uh, Geisler's definition is this. Pre-evangelism is tilling the soil of people's minds and hearts to help them be more willing to listen to the truth. Tilling the soil of people's minds and hearts to help them be more willing to listen to the truth. 1 Corinthians 3.6 says, I planted the seed, that's Paul, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. Like I said before, why would anyone listen to the good news of what Jesus has done, if they don't believe that, number one, they don't believe that they need salvation. They don't believe that it matters what you believe and they don't believe that Jesus is God. 
Because then you could say, Jesus died for your sins, but they say, oh, it doesn't matter what you believe. Well, Jesus died for your sins. Well, I don't even believe Jesus is God. Jesus died for your sins. Well, I don't think I need salvation. You see, all these obstacles, these barriers, keep them from receiving the pure uh, milk of the gospel that's presented to them. And these are the obstacles that we as Christians have to start off addressing even before we share the gospel. And that's what we're going to get to next week, which is how to present the gospel. Because many of us don't even know, like, how do I share my faith? Before we get to that, we're going to talk about pre-evangelism addressing those barriers. Matthew 10, 16 says, we are to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. Which means communicating the truth of the gospel in a way that will receive the greatest possible acceptance. And maybe you've been to New York City and you've seen the open air preaching. And I'm not about to criticize that, but, you know, I... In some cases, it has worked. I'm not going to doubt that. But it just seems kind of weird to go out into the middle of the street and just start preaching the gospel and people yell at you and scream at you and, and they're like, well, I was persecuted. Yeah, but really, did you try your best to find the way in which you could meet the people right where they were? That's what Paul said. I am all things to all men that I, that I might save some. It's not Facebook debates. As some, some of us might do, you go on Facebook and all you want to do is prove a point. You go on atheist forums, you type all these things and like, how about this? We'll take that. And you just throw these left and right. And is that really doing your best to till the soil and remove those barriers? Blaise Pascal says, we should, make people, uh, we should make people wish the gospel were true, then show them that it is. Colossians 4, 5 through 6 says, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. In other words, don't waste your time. Don't just go around just being like, oh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do all this. Think about the best way to present. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. That's what we read today before we even got started. So here's an objection that comes up very frequently. Well, apologetics doesn't save anyone. I mean, who is saved by giving them the cosmological argument? You know, in the beginning, uh, everything, that, everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe had a beginning, therefore the universe has a cause. Who was ever saved by them telling them that? It seems so boring. Well, people like C.S. Lewis would disagree with you because C.S. Lewis was saved through apologetics. And even the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense, which is where we get the word apologetics from the Greek word apologia, Give a defense to everyone who asks your reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So to that objection for the person who says apologetics doesn't actually save anyone, it doesn't even really matter, think about it this way. What you're doing is you're addressing those barriers that people have that keeps them from faith in Jesus Christ because a lot of people don't even think that it's an intellectual faith. They think faith is just blindly walking around and doing without seeing. But like I said, we've taken a leap in the dark, but we've found the light switch. We've seen the light. So we believe if you place your faith in Jesus, you can see clearly. And if not, then you're just walking in darkness. But we've found the light. And you also get this kind of double warrant inside of your heart. So not only do you have this faith and experience, because as you grow as a Christian, maybe you're not saved through apologetics, and that's probably the case. You were saved by some other means. But... After that, as you grow in the Lord, you're going to have questions. And if no one's able to answer your questions, all of a sudden you start to doubt. Like, well, is this really true? Can I really trust what I believe? 
And by having apologetics, not only do you have the inner witness, inner witness of the Holy Spirit being a warrant of your faith, but you also have your intellectual knowledge that backs you up. So that one fails, you don't feel the presence of the Lord as close as you have before. And all of a sudden, well, but I know that God is real. My intellect keeps me uh, warranted when my faith starts to wane. Because I know I can just go right back to the Bible and it's there for me. And God is there to meet me. So pr through pre-evangelism, we aim to get them to take one step closer to Jesus. Realize tonight that evangelism is a process. Don't just look to hang out, hand out tracts and just be like, come to youth group, come to this Harvest America thing. Really look to be involved in people's lives, to make friendships. When we went to England, we had conversations for like two and a half hours long. Really long conversations. Because you want to make friendships. You want to show them that you're in there for the long run. Now, if they're just kind of like there and they don't want to hear it, that's one thing. And we had a couple conversations where it took like a minute because they wanted nothing to do with us. But after that, make a friendship. How do you do this? How do you do pre-evangelism? And as I'm talking about these things, it can be a lot of information, and I understand that. But if you've ever been in math class, like you hate math class, at least most of us do, because you feel like this has nothing to do with your life, right? That's, that was my feeling. It's like, why do I study algebra? I will never be in a point in my life where I'm like, well, I'm glad I knew this equation. I'm, I'm glad I knew what the first 500 digits of pi were, because now I can make pi. I don't know. It just seemed irrelevant. But when you take this information and you recognize this is relevant stuff, all of a sudden now it's exciting. And the people that are mathematicians see that boring stuff to us and they see it as relevant to their lives. So just keep that in the back of your mind is this information will come in handy as you exercise your faith. So anyway, how do we do this? How do we do pre-evangelism? And I'm not going too much longer either, so don't worry. I have three Ds for you. Three Ds. Doubt, defensiveness, desire. Or Desiree. <laughs> Sorry. So three Ds. Number one, ask questions in a way that surfaces doubt about their beliefs. Ask questions that surfaces doubt about their beliefs. Secondly, you want to minimize defensiveness. And thirdly, you want to create in them a desire to hear more. So first, you want to ask questions that raise doubt about their beliefs. So that they question, what, what I'm saying to this person, is it really true? Do I really believe in the stuff that I'm saying? Secondly, you want to minimize defensiveness. You don't want to shout at them. You don't want to slap them in the face. Like, you're so dumb. Because they'll put up any, another barrier in front of you and you won't be able to reach them with the gospel. Thirdly, creating them a desire to hear more. Would you like more information? You know, this is exciting stuff and by sharing it like that. If you look at the Bible, even Jesus asked questions. In Matthew 19, 17, why do you ask me about what is good? Mark 8, 29, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Mark 10, 3, what did Moses command you? He replied. Mark 12, 24, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? So all of this is taken straight from Jesus. This is just the way that he did things. He asked people questions that surfaced doubt in their own minds, minimized defensiveness, and created a desire to hear more. What kind of person is this that he knows how to even confuse us, the Pharisees and the scribes? Interesting thing about questions also, as David Baker notes, is he says, 
A person can close his ears to facts he does not want to hear, but if a pointed question causes him to form the answer in his own mind, he cannot escape the conclusion because it's a conclusion that he himself reached. You realize that? When you ask these pointed questions to people and you ask them, well, can you just clarify with me? I, I never really understood this about Islam because Islam always says that, um, I don't know, just one of the things about Islam is, um, you know, you, you don't know that you're, you can't ever really be sure if you're going to heaven because your good deeds have to outweigh your, your bad deeds. And it, that pointed question causes them to think, wow, do I really believe that I don't have assurance of salvation? That's just one example. So here are some practicalities of how to do pre-evangelism. Finally, we'll get to the steps. First step is to play the role of the musician. You can just write down musician. Play the role of the musician. What do I mean by that? Well, if, you're, if you know what a musician is, a musician, as they're practicing and playing, they'll play and listen to discrepancies, they'll listen to sour notes, things that don't jive with the rest of the band, and they'll correct them and get better. So firstly, we as Christians must learn how to be good listeners when talking to people. And that's playing the role of a musician. You're, you're a, uh, a good listener who's listening for discrepancies in what people are saying. And if we're not good listeners, we're only going to increase defensiveness, which might cut off any future conversation. So here are some, some helpful tips. Number one, don't think of what to say while they're speaking. If someone's talking to you, really make eye contact with them. Really engage with them. Nod your head and just say, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I see where you're coming from. It helps them feel validated and that you actually care about them. James 1.19 says, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Don't cut them off while they're speaking. You know, that's just rude. Let them finish what they're saying. You'll get your opportunity to talk. Repeat back to them a paraphrase of what they told you to show that you understand what they mean. So I'll often say, after someone has did this long-winded paragraph of what they're believing and saying, I'll paraphrase it back to them and say, so you just said this, is that correct? Am I understanding you correctly? And they'll either say yes or no. If they're heated, they'll just say, no, you're, you're not listening to me. So help me understand what you're trying to say. Look for inconsistencies in what they believe and ask clarifying questions so that they see the errors for themselves. And Geisler calls these inconsistencies sour notes. Here's some examples of some sour notes, some inconsistencies in what people say and what they believe. First one is illogical belief. Illogical belief. Belief that's not logical. Inconsistency in a belief. Here's an example. Someone might say, all religions are essentially saying the same thing. All religions are true. But if you think about it, if you embrace everything, you stand for nothing. If everything is true, then nothing is true in particular. If all views are true, then you stand for no view in particular. It's just like saying everyone is special, but if everyone is special, then special is nothing in particular because everyone's special. There's nothing to distinguish special from non-special. Here's another example. God is just so far beyond us that I don't think we can know anything about him. But that statement to say that God is so far beyond us that we can't know anything about him is itself a knowledge claim about God. Do you catch that? you understand what I'm saying? Shake your head if you do not understand because I want to help you out. Okay. To say that God is so far beyond us is to say that you know something about God. 
which means that you can know some things about God at least. Here's another one. Another sour note is belief versus behavior. This is basically inconsistency between what one believes and how one lives it out. Inconsistency between what one believes and how one lives it out. So here's an example of that. Someone saying, there is no meaning to life. Life is purposeless. Life is so meaningless. And then you just ask him a question. It must be pretty hard living your life that way, isn't it? How do you live your life without meaning, without purpose? Oh, wait, I can't do that. I just said that, but I can't actually do that. Another one might be, there's no such thing as right and wrong. And you might get in the philosophical connotations of that. And I believe that all morality is relative. You know, some people think this is right and wrong, but it's all just what you believe. And you say, are you really, do you really think that what Hitler did by exterminating millions of Jews was just their opinion and it wasn't actually wrong? Well, yeah, but that's Hitler. Okay, so then what's the standard? You see what I'm getting at? Show them the inconsistency between their belief and their behavior. And you do that by asking them questions. You don't have to always have the answer. You don't always have to like slap them and be like, you're so dumb. Just ask them the question so they see the inconsistency for themselves. Thirdly and finally, Sarah note is belief versus belief. This is inconsistency between two contradictory beliefs. That might be something like, I believe Jesus, and you might get this from a lot of Catholic people, unfortunately, is people saying, I believe Jesus died for our sins. And I also believe that you just have to be a good person to go to heaven. And you point out that inconsistency by saying what? Raise your hand. How would you point out that inconsistency between what one believes and another belief that they hold? Yes. Yeah. It's saying that Jesus died for nothing. Why would Jesus have to die if you can get to heaven by being a good person? That's one question to help them draw it out. As much as possible, you want to ask them questions that let them answer it for themselves so that they can't escape the own, their own conclusion that they form in their mind. So first, you want to play this, the role of the musician. Secondly, step two, play the role of the artist. Play the role of the artist. So playing by the role of the artist means to ask these clarifying questions after you hear these Sarah notes to reveal the, those inconsistencies to the skeptic. Ask clarifying questions to reveal those inconsistencies to the skeptic. So you hear the sour note, and then you want to play the, the role of the artist, which is painting a picture for them of what their belief is so that they see for themselves it's a mess. I think something that we have to get used to is when someone throws a tough or loaded question at you, instead of answering, place the burden of proof on them. Because so... so um, so commonly, we can get used to someone saying something really offensive and you want to respond back in fervor or just be like, you know, you're so dumb or you're stupid, you don't know what you're talking about. Like when people say to you, I believe that Christianity is a crutch. You know, you might feel like that was an emotionally driven thing and you want to respond by being like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. Instead, ask them a clarifying question. What do you mean by crutch? What do you mean? By crutch. You see the difference here? This eliminates that defensiveness because you're not drawing it up. You're just honestly wondering what they mean. So initial questions to surface doubt might be something like, do you think life has a purpose? Do you think human lives are valuable? Do you think that all people will be held accountable for the way that they live? And if so, 
what do you think the standard will be? Some follow-up questions might be, how is it possible for there to be meaning and purpose in our lives and at the same time believe there is no God? How is it possible to believe that life is valuable and yet believe that life is an accident? Or a very good one, this one you actually might want to write down. Do you believe Hitler will be in heaven? If not, then what is the standard that Hitler does not measure up to, but other people do? This is a really good one for people that believe that all people go to heaven. They say, well, I think that in the end, all roads lead to heaven. And you ask them, do you really believe that Hitler is going to be in heaven? And if not, because most people say no, if not, then what is the standard that Hitler does not measure up to, but other people do? I thought that to be a very, very interesting question. Thirdly and finally, the third step is learning the role of the archaeologist. We're almost done, don't worry. Learning the role of the archaeologist. So the archaeologist digs up these barriers that people have to embrace the gospel. You're digging up those barriers and seeing what's unco- you're uncovering those barriers that people would have to accepting Jesus. Proverbs 25 says, 20 verse 5 says, The purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. So here are some types of barriers. You have intellectual barriers, emotional barriers, and volitional barriers. An intellectual barrier might be something like, they ask you, um, you know, why does God allow, uh, well, that actually is more emotional. And intellectual barriers, I just don't believe that God is real because he's never shown himself to me or I can't see him with my own eyes. And that's an intellectual barrier that you can address because maybe that's the only thing can keep keeping them from the gospel. Or how do we know that the Bible is reliable? And by answering that, maybe they just genuinely never thought about it before. An emotional barrier would be something like, how could a good God allow so much suffering? And whenever they ask that question, always ask, you know, is there something that happened to you if you wouldn't mind sharing with me? Because maybe there really is uh, an emotionally driven thing behind that. Or they might say something like, why are there so many hypocrites in the church? Or why doesn't God answer my prayers? And by addressing that emotional barrier and showing that you really care about them, maybe that barrier can be lifted. And lastly, the one barrier that we can't really deal with is the volitional barrier, which is a person saying, I know what you're saying is true, but I have things in my life I don't want to give up. And I've encountered, unfortunately, I've encountered a lot of people like that. I know that Christianity is true, but I just do not want to live my life in that kind of way. I don't want to give up my lifestyle. What do you do with volitional barriers? What do you do if a person rejects the gospel? Raise your hand. What do you think? Mike Forcella. Yes, you can pray. Here's a question that I asked the England team once. Is there any biblical basis for praying for people that don't believe in God? Is there? Does the Bible ever say to pray for those people that don't believe in God? Well, I don't want to take away from small group time, so I'll just tell you the answer. Yes, Romans chapter 10 verse 1 says this. Paul, writing the letter to the Romans, says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for for Israel is that they may be saved. There you go. Romans 10.1. Paul's desire was for Israel that they may be saved. And he prayed to God for them. So obviously there's at least one biblical basis. And you see that Jesus himself prayed for Peter. 
when he was in unbelief. Satan wanted to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you, Jesus said. So obviously there is uh, a biblical basis for people that don't believe in God. Pray for those that have this volitional barrier. Maybe that'll be lifted one day and you can love them. So that's the two things you can do. You can love them and you can pray for them. People that volitionally reject God. Don't treat them like they're insignificant people. Don't treat them like they're enemies of Christ, even though in some sense they are. But love them and it's by their by your love that they can see your good works. Um, so that's all I got for tonight. That's the conclusion. Probably the worst conclusion I've ever had to the message. But um, really, I had to make this into a two-part thing because it's just too long. So I really want you guys to think about this. Pre-evangelism is just telling the soil of people's minds so that they're ready to receive the gospel. And that's what we're going to talk about next week, so don't worry about it. But really, as we go into this over the next coming weeks, let's think about opportunities in our daily lives that we can share the gospel with others. And don't be afraid to practice it because we learned about boldness last week. And if you haven't gotten that message, it'll be on the podcast. So you can check that out and highly recommend you, for you to do that. Let's close in prayer.